The History Show with Kieran Doyle on West Cork FM. Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of The History Show. I know you've been waiting anxiously for part two of Dr. John Gibney's revolutionary walking tour of Dublin. In this part of the walk, John takes us ambling through Dublin once again, touching on topics like the Irish Convention that assembled at Trinity College in a roundtable conference aimed at securing consensus between the nationalists and unionists to secure the passage of home rule. John also deals with the destruction of the Custom House, an attack made by the Dublin Brigade of the IRA, as well as the Four Courts' attack in the opening hostilities that marked the beginning of the Civil War. I hope you enjoy it. Events, you know, you could say British patience did snap. I mean, there was a British garrison kept in Dublin until the foundation, the, the official foundation of the Free State in 1922. Dublin was a garrison city in many ways, with a lot of barracks around, okay? But there was a British garrison kept here in the Royal Barracks, about 5,000 troops that only left in December 1922. Just in case people began to change their minds and they had to swiftly kind of make a move to kind of change to deal with matters. It's often argued that basically uh, the decision to attack the Four Courts with the Free State Government was precipitated by a British decision to reinvade Ireland after the assassination of Sir Henry Wilson in London in 1922, shot in the doorstep by two members of the IRA who ironically, having shot dead a member of former, the former Chief of the Imperial General Staff in the First World War, were themselves veterans of the First World War. One of them no leg, which Hayes which, you know, interfered with his, um, with his escape. The Four Courts was attacked on June, on the 28th of June 1922, using artillery located at two bridges, at the bottom of Bridgefoot Street and then the bottom of Bridge Street. So basically, next bridge up, there would have been artillery pieces firing across at the building. Now, and you know, you want to crowd the spectators along the quays looking at this, a bit like the Easter Rising, you know, people turned out in droves to watch the fighting. And the same happened on O'Connell Street, you know, which, um, you know, also would have been the scene of fighting during the Civil War. The four courts were the, the fighting around the four courts lasted about six days when the public records office was famously destroyed. Okay, and you've probably seen that big picture of the plume of smoke coming up out of the building. And there's photographs and newspapers at the time of people going around picking up old bits of parchment, you know, from the ground. Um, most of the garrison were um, were uh, were were imprisoned, though some escaped. And Ernie O'Malley, who escaped with a very young Sean Lamas, whose family home was actually on Cable Street up here. Um, left a very, very vivid account of you know getting out the forecourts and the fires and the destruction and so forth. Public record office is the one that people um, people generally think of, and it normally gets blamed. It's, it's a bit of a ding dong between one side and the other. Was it the disregard of Republicans for using the public records office as a munitions dump, or the disregard of the new National Army for firing artillery artillery pieces at it? Because if you ask any archivist, neither one will tell, and no archivist will tell you that either option is best practice. Okay. <laughs> seems to have been the case that it was detonated by the anti-treaty forces, okay? The military archives decided to solve it, resolve the issue a few years ago when they put a document on social media of uh, the order saying detonate the explosives in there. They just put it out without comment and said, look, leave it there, you know? Now, there's currently a plan at the moment because there's an issue of a commemoration. And I'm being a bit cynical here, okay? But how do you commemorate the Civil War, okay? The chronology of a decade of centenaries has a slight problem at the end of it because it doesn't really end on a positive note. Okay, you're talking about a, d- a deeply divisive and brutal and vicious conflict. Nothing to celebrate. There's certainly something to remember. But there is one way of kind of getting something resembling a kind of politique happy ending out of it, which is a, a project called Beyond 2022, which Trinity College Dublin are, uh, you know, spearheading. 
And the idea is to basically recreate the public record office in 1922 as a virtual archive. Because it turns out that a lot of the documents that were lost in 1922, and look, I did my doctorate in 17th century history, you know, and I did actually pull that card once or twice and was asked, why didn't you look at that, Gibney? Ah, well, I would have loved it, but it got blown up in 1922, you know. It turns out, though, that back in the day, you know, the kind of people that would publish historical records would transcribe them first and would also edit and select along the way. So institutions such as the Historical Manuscripts Commission, or, her ma- or her, you know, His Majesty's or Her Majesty's Stationary Office, or various priests with nothing better to do with their hands around the country you who transcribed various records, or whoever, create copious copies of documents that are scattered around the planet. And what they're trying to do is kind of digitise these, reconstitute them. You create a virtual 3D model of what the public record office would have looked like, and you can literally go onto a shelf and select the document or volume that would have been there up until June 1922, and look at a digital copy of it. How much can they get back? Well, I bumped into someone the other day who was involved in it, um, Mihal Oshoku of Trinity College, who uh, said that of 55 records of the Cromwellian, 55 volumes of records of the Cromwellian government in Ireland that were destroyed in 1922, 55 volumes covering 1949 to 19, or 1649 to 1660, they've got at least 70% back. You know, so if you keep that ratio, and I think part of the idea is that at the end of the day, when the thing is finally released in 1922, it's going to be a gift back to the nation, reassembling what was lost. You know, I don't know, maybe you're a bit cynical of the use of spin that might be putting it but uh, a very worthwhile novel project nonetheless and the thing is if it's digital it's all free it's all yours it's public irish public records you are irish people by all means use them as you will um it took a while to rebuild the, the four courts but it was rebuilt it's still doing what it once did and here we are today now what we're going to do we're going to cross back over here and we're going to cut through temple bar so we'll head on this way and cross back retrace our steps over here but I, I would think that exhibition is well worth the look. It's funny going past it. Like, um, I know I'm going to probably plug in the collected back catalogues of John Gidney here, but um, the photo book that I put together, which I'm looking forward to getting a copy of during the week, and which I'm sure will make a fine gift for anyone in your life this Christmas, <laughs> uh, actually uses a good few, um, quite a lot of images from the National Library who run the photography archive. But I saw two of them in there. And for a part, we thought, ah, he's got there ahead of me. Then I thought, hold on a minute, they're yours anyway, I can't really complain. <laughs> One is a picture of Constance Markovich in Liberty Hall the night of her release in March 1919, having been imprisoned in the German plot. But the other is a, a poster for the Gaty Hotel for a play called Damaged Goods. Syphilis. <laughs> and uh, wonder, wonder, we, we can be a bit kind of, um, I don't know, almost po-faced about the First World War. But I know Danny Boyle, there seems to be a bit of a criticism of Danny Boyle at the moment, the film director who uh, is coming up with some kind of commemorative event for the end of the Fourth of War in the UK. And the point being made, right, for four years, the whole point of commemorating the Fourth of War has been dwelling upon the 12% of men who were killed, not the 88 or 89% of men who survived. And that's something to touch on later on, you know. Um, and one consequence of demobilisation in 1919 was that uh, the prevalence of sexually transmitted diseases in Dublin suddenly dramatically went up, okay? And uh, Dr. Stevens Hospital at Houston Station would have actually had a couple of dedicated wards to deal with the likes of syphilis in 1919. So it wasn't all po-faced, you know. Now, that's a digression. The reason I wanted to bring you in here, apart from the fact that it's been a while since I've seen the umbrellas, is to point out one little thing about the where we are that I suppose is a relevance to the broader issue of Irish independence, because the independence movement was Republican. What's a right? What's an Irish Republican? You know, it was a broad church back then. I mean, um, Sinn Fein was reconstituted as a Republican party, and Republican had become a shorthand for separatist. 
um, in the aftermath of the Easter Rising, you know. Uh, I mean, Sinn Féin did try to dodge kind of contentious issues. They did. They're a bit like, in one way, they're a bit like the old Reverendy Home Rule Party, trying to be all things to all men. I mean, there's a great line from uh, one member of Sinn Féin, J.J. Ginger O'Connell, who was asked by an American journalist, what was the policy of Sinn Féin in 1917? His answer, vengeance be Jesus, I quote. <laughs> but, you know, content, like, say issues over land outside Dublin, they could be fudged. Like, shouldn't independent Ireland redistribute land? Yeah, yeah, maybe. Come back to us on that one, OK? The, f- the first priority was, however, getting independence. Uh, ideally in the form of a republic. But the argument went that uh, they were open to change. I mean, the Sinn Féin argument was for independence in some form. A republic by decision, if need be. But Republican became the shorthand for separatism. The reason I mention it here is that the origins of republicanism in Dublin lie around the corner, in what is now the Quaker Meeting House, but with it, which in 1791 was a tavern called the Eagle, uh, one of the, um, which would have, how, I suppose, hosted the first meeting of the Dublin branch of the Society of United Irishmen in October 1791, you know. And that and the Presbyterian Meeting House that's behind that building, I suppose, give Meeting House Square here its name, you know. It's, um, one thing about the, the manner which uh, the Sinn Féin election victory, you know, because uh, we're not we're not going to get up near the Mansion House today. We're just on the time, but that building is such a venue. or was such a venue for so many things in that era, you know, like um, the first all, obviously, the um, receptions for released prisoners in 1917-18, and actually today the first all, <laughs> quite literally, TD Sinn Féin TDs going in to attend the first all were kind of passing members of the Royal Dublin Fusiliers coming out because they've been at a reception, you know, in honour of their participation in the war and their service <laughs> then you would have had a wide, I mean, all kinds of events commemorations of the, the Russian revolution or you know labour meetings the, the talks that led to the truce in 1921 the Martin House would have played a role in all of them but the doll is the thing that we think of probably more than anything else and why not because it's so, it was so crucially important you know and the argument did run World War I was all about the right to small nation self-determination etc 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 it's hard to argue against the first doll as being anything other than that you know um, and it's no coincidence that, you know, I know I mentioned the caveat earlier on about the foundation of the free state, but the Irish state, it's called the first all for a reason. Like, the state traces itself back to 1919, you know, and that, that kind of lineage is certainly there. We kind of went off on one there. Yeah, but the thing about electorates, like, um, the, the thing that was seen to give the big boost to Sinn Féin in 1918 was the prospect of conscription being imposed on Ireland, okay? It's another way which World War I shaped Irish affairs at mm. that time, because, you know, after, in 1917, you would have had a series of election victories as by-elections were called in Longford and elsewhere, you know, being won by Sinn Féin candidates. And those celebrations were kind of, they were, they were celebrated in Dublin, you know, those electoral victories. In the early months of 1918, the Irish Parliamentary Party won three by-elections on the bounce, in a row. So there's a case for saying that, right, you're a big source towards Sinn Féin and separatism. But then, the Irish elector was going to move him back to his traditional representatives, you know, Redmond's party. The thing, though, was all of a sudden, Throughout the First World War, Redmond's party had argued that, um, maybe not, I mean, Redmond himself was more more vociferous in the support for the war, but the red line, to use that parlance for the Irish Parliamentary Party, in terms of its support for the war effort, no conscription. That was it. And then, from a British point of view, in early 19, 1918, the Germans broke through on the Western Front, and all of a sudden, they needed that manpower. And it kind of was sending out a message. I mean, people, it wasn't lost on people. Like, you know, Redmond and his party were led up the garden path, twice. Once over partition, but now it was obvious that, you know, the British were quite prepared to run roughshod over what they wanted. And they were discredited as well, you know. It's a big reason why Sinn Féin became, suddenly became such a, bit, a powerful force that people voted for. Because here, I mean, why bother voting for the Parliamentary Party? They were a busted flush. You know, their credibility was shattered by uh, the prospect of the Colton description. And it was also another thing. Like, one thing I haven't mentioned so far is, you know, suffrage. 
the fact that women got the vote, or should I say women over the age of 30, according to uh, the, re the Representation of the People Act. Now, it wasn't just women who got the vote, in, women over the age of 30 got the vote in 1918. A lot of men got the vote as well, because the electorate was expanded dramatically. So there's a case for saying that you had a very, very different electorate that was, that was casting this vote, and a much bigger one, and a younger one, that was casting this vote in 1918. And these new voters weren't necessarily going to throw their lot in with the party that their fathers and grandfathers and uncles had fought for or had voted for over time, you know. So there was, it's often said there was a bit of a generational shift there and, you know, there's a case to be said for that, you know. That has absolutely nothing to do with the fact that we're standing on the street corner in Temple Bar, but it just kind of went off, <laughs> and, you know. Name this guy. Because this used to be the site of an ironworks that was here in, in um, throughout the War of Independence and indeed the Civil War. And there's an ironworks that was used, I think it was Barrett's Ironworks was the name of it, that was used as basically um, an impromptu weapons factory to machine, to hand to machine the casings of grenades for the IRA. Because the IRA had a bit, a bit of a problem in terms of getting weapons, okay? Um, they were very, I mean, you could steal weapons, you could purchase weapons in likes of Germany and smuggle them in, or you could manufacture them. Another way of doing it was to kind of rob them off, was to buy them off uh, British soldiers. In the 1917-18, there were quite a few cases that reported that happening. And um, what's now Griffith College, which was formerly Wellington Barracks, was actually a good location for weapons because it backed onto the canal. And there are stories of members of the volunteers swimming across the canal, have made some arrangements with some disgruntled Tommy to sell them their rifle, you know. But at the end of the day, weapons were hard to get. And in early 1921, the IRA began to up its campaign in Dublin, okay, in a more systematic way, and more deliberate attacks on British patrols, using explosives, you know, trying to exploit the fact that, you know, this is the type of warfare British forces weren't familiar with, okay? To do that, though, you need the weapons and explosives to do it. So they did make kind of casings for homemade grenades on this location. Um, other parts, you know, other parts of the other premises and other parts of the city would have been used to kind of manufacture other bits and pieces, you know? And I suppose they had some success in doing this, you know? But bear in mind, this was, it was, the war they fought was very much the war of the fleet, you know? Um, and a relatively small number of people, they found themselves quite effective in the streets of Dublin. And from a British point of view, Dublin was actually they actually described themselves in their own record of what happened in Ireland as essentially a, a city that was tailor-made for guerrilla warfare. It's narrow, winding streets, you know, it's old architecture. It was a, a, extraordinarily effective for attackers to come out of the shadows, to attack and then melt away again. It was something they found very, very difficult to get, to get their heads around, which explains a lot of the kind of heavy-handed tactics that they used, sealing off entire blocks of the city, you know, or entire chunks of the city, you know. The reverse was true in the sense that it was vitally important for the independence movement to keep a presence on the streets. There's a reason why, you know, the first all didn't play, didn't take place in Longford at the back of a farm. You know, it took place in public. There was a cachet, Dublin had a cachet about being a capital city, you know, um, a city that attracted media attention. Because it was so important for uh, Sinn Féin in particular to broadcast the Irish cause, to use this kind of an international network to broadcast propaganda. And I mean, you know, Sinn Féin had, had, you know, de facto diplomats in Denmark, in Scandinavia, you know, getting kind of propaganda into newspapers, you know, getting stuff in Italy, you know, across South America, using propaganda in multiple languages to try and foster support for the Irish cause in multiple countries and therefore hopefully put pressure on the government of those countries to put pressure on the British instead. It's a part of the story of the revolution that it doesn't really get the traction that, um, that it deserves sometimes. It was important, however, that, you know, this was broadcast. Dublin would have had lots of journalists, lots of reporters, and even though there was censorship, it was seen as vitally important in symbolic terms to keep a presence in Dublin, and also to be challenging the British on the streets of Dublin. Whether or not it was effective, it was sending out a message as much as anything else. 
So having some kind of control of Dublin, having some kind of uh, presence on the streets, and some kind of, um, I suppose, ongoing challenge to British authority in Ireland's capital city was vitally important for the message that Republicans were trying to send in 1920 and 1921. Now we're going to head down to, unless anyone really wants to go, what you saw, who was, who was the Saudi uh, the sign up for free beer earlier? Yeah. It's long behind us by the time we get down to Temple Bar. But uh, we've got to go up to College Green as we wrap our way down to the customs house. I think we're doing all right for time, okay? You're all hanging in there? Yeah. How's. Can we gather in here a little bit? Yeah, I'll have to stand in here. I'm hard of hearing. That's what you'll hear me. <laughs> um, now, College Green. Once upon a time known as Hogan Green and once upon a time outside the city centre. Uh, I suppose the key to understand Dublin's development in a nutshell, it developed west, following the line of the River Liffey, and Aaron Henderson nods his head sagely as he tries to catch me out. Um, but over time, this became, I mean, the Latin name for Trinity College is the College of the Holy and Undivided Trinity of Queen Elizabeth, near Dublin. Not outside, not in Dublin, near Dublin. Okay, and I better confess to being a graduate of said university myself. Okay, um, It's rolled here in this period. See that thing over there? The Four Colonnades Regent House. The venue for the Irish Convention that met between 1917 and 1918. Um, in the aftermath of the Easter Rising, the British decided that it might make sense to try and pass Home Rule, which, I mean, Home Rule had been passed in 1912 officially through Westminster with a compromise for Unionists, basically to get around the deadlock of, you know, the Unionist nationalists, what was almost a burgeoning civil war between Ulster Unionism and Irish nationalism in the summer of 1914. When the war broke out, Home Rule was passed by the Westminster Parliament. It was suspended, however, with two caveats. One being that whenever they got around to it, they'd make some kind of provision for the Unionists of Ulster, some form of partition, however defined. And the other caveat was, we're not going to discuss anything until the war was over. Which was grand if you thought the war was going to be over by Christmas, but as we all know now, it wasn't. The British did have a sense, did have feel though, or at least took the view that one reason why the Easter Rising had broken out was a political vacuum. That, you know, if Home Rule had been passed in 1914, would that have robbed a lot of ground under uh, from the feet of Republicans? Because the British drastically overestimated the level of support that separatism had in the Ireland of 1916. It explains their heavy-handed reaction to the rising in many ways, but there was also a realisation that just ahead of a Republican threat or separatist threat of the past, past home rule. And that meant getting some kind of compromise between the two sides who couldn't agree. Irish and Ulster Unionism, because the distinction between the two became very apparent then, and Irish nationalism. The Irish Convention was uh, ran from July 1916 until early in April, 19, uh, April 1918 in Trinity College Dublin. Or I should say 1917 until April 1918. And it was basically a conference between the representatives of Home Rule and Irish Unionists. It was boycotted by two key groups, Sinn Féin and also Ulster Unionism, who had realised which side their bread was buttered on and were discreetly at that stage being... Had, I suppose they were going to accept the necessity from their point of view of as they saw it, abandoning their co-religionists to what became the Irish Free State. Because the argument, I mean, if a home rule Ireland was going to be such an appalling vista for Protestants, well, also Unionists were quite happy to let many Irish Protestants remain in such an appalling vista, you know. They began to detach themselves and cord themselves off in what ultimately became Northern Ireland, okay? It makes for an interesting kind of, uh, I suppose, discussion between Irish nationalism and Irish unionism, you know. It's fascinating at one level, but Due to the absence of those two key constituencies, um, even the presence of quite a good deal of goodwill and a willingness to listen to the other side, means that the Irish Convention was ultimately ineffectual. Okay. Um, now Trinity itself would have been. Would have, I mean, 
Trinity would have had, has one of the few public war memorials in the city centre in the form of the 1937 reading room, commemorating about 471 students and staff of the college were killed uh, in the course of the First World War. Um, would have remained quite strongly, would have had a fairly strong unionist complexion throughout its um, throughout this period, you know, given that traditionally it was the, the Anglican University in Ireland. Now, another great bastion of ascendancy Ireland, however, is this thing here, the Bank of Ireland. And as for that question of about, I'm going to think the only reason the Royal, the main reason that Royal Crest survived is that couldn't need a big ladder to get up there and vandalise it. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. And it's funny because if you look across the street, I always like that. A much more nationalistic set of symbols over there. Aaron Gabra. Hibernia. A harp. And look at what's on top of the harp. Crown. 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 So this is the this is the weird thing. Republicanism was anti was didn't didn't really have much place for monarchy. But a lot of Irish nationalists couldn't necessarily could live with the idea of monarchy to some degree. You know, it was British rule, that was the issue. The form of it rather than the or the substance rather than the form of it, you know. Um, now, another little, quick, little thing about it is that the firm that actually put it up there in seventy or in 1890 was a firm called Pearson Sharp. Yeah. Pearson question being James Pearce, London stonemason, a Methodist, who came over to Ireland, converted to Catholicism. This may have been the result of either A, a genuine spiritual conviction, or B, the realisation that in Ireland most of the church, well, there was a lot of work for sculptors in doing up Catholic churches, yeah. and it kind of might help your case if you were, you know, you know of, that, of, that, of that faith. And his two sons, Patrick and William, Need no more introduction here, okay? Bank of Ireland would have been uh, in March 1922 was handed over to the Free State with a military guard because the Bank of Ireland's private institution but was the banker to uh, the British administration and was invited to maintain that role in the early years of the Free State, you know. So it became the banker to the Irish Free State. Then there's things that aren't here, and it's also the case of what College Green was the venue for, and that brings the legacy of the First World War. I've not been to the last Nevin Cemetery lately. Have you seen the uh, the Ginchy Cross? But the Ginchy Cross, it's, let's just say, it's meant to have, it, it's, anyway, you know. It's a replica of a cross that was uh, erected on the Western Front to commemorate the 16th Irish Division, right? Um, and a replica was put up in um, Bath and Assembly in late, 1920, late 2016 to commemorate the Irish involved in the war, because so much of it took place in France. There was a replica of that cross in College Green in the early 1920s outside Trinity College, okay? College Green, I mean, College Green hosted the, the official victory parade to mark the end of the First World War, and Arms Day parade thereafter. And this was, until about 1926, the main venue for the commemoration of the First World War in a public space in Dublin, before it was shifted out of the city centre to get to the Phoenix Park. Okay? Now, it's sometimes suggested that, you know, the war was, the World War I was ignored and forgotten about in Irish history, you know? That claim doesn't stand up to scrutiny. I make one point about that. What's the single biggest monument to military service of any kind in the island of Ireland? I mean, okay, the guard, there's the Garden of Remembrance, but that's much smaller. And there's no island bridge for Irishmen who fought in the American Civil War. Members of the National Army who died in the Civil War. Members of the IRA. It was a very, it was a real and live issue because tens of thousands of survivors came back to Dublin. You know, hospitals were filled with them. The hundreds of graves in Glass Member Cemetery of, um, of, the, of World War One dead. They're not men who were killed in combat. They died in hospitals in Ireland, having been repatriated with wounds, you know, and very often died in the influenza epidemic. And it wasn't just the case of those who died, it was the people that were left behind. They had families. And if you look at the sheer numbers of men who fought in the First World War, bear in mind, a lot of them were politically nationalist. And this kind of means that it complicates to a certain extent, you know, the view of the First World War. Because as early as 1919, I mean, in, 19, in July 1919, the Mansion House hosted um, 
an event organised by a group calling itself the Irish Nationalist Ex-Servicemen's Organisation, which was boycotting the official end of the, the official ceremonies for the ending of the war in protest against what it described as the coercion of this country. That a lot of men who had fought in the British Army were had serious reservations about the British policy in Ireland in the aftermath of the war. And one of the people to, to address this meeting was the widow of Thomas Kettle, the MP killed at the Somme. So there was a complicated attitude to the war. It was hard to unequivocally celebrate the, or commemorate World War I given the sensitivity of the time. How could you unequivocally commemorate service in an army whose representatives were now carrying out reprisals in Ireland within a couple of years? You know, and that does complicate things. There's reports around the country of you know auxiliaries and black and tans enforcing the two-minute silence on 11 November at gunpoint. So it does complicate matters and we need to bear that in mind. Now, at the same time, even aside from the politics of it, there was the reality of the human cost. A lot of Republicans lost loved ones in the war. You know, a lot of Irish people lost loved ones in the war, full stop. And throughout the 1920s, a lot of Republicans would often argue, well, we've no problem with the people commemorating their dead. That's not the issue. We, commem- we have a problem with it being used as kind of a, some kind of imperialistic pageant. And Trinity College students developed the bad habit of forcing people to sing God Save the King on Arms Day outside the gates. Arms Day commemoration in the city centre would have been disrupted, you know, at times. So there was an element of disru- disruption. It was a flashpoint. But it was there and was a reality of life and the lives of many, many people in the city, you know. And there were arms to stay commemorations in Dublin up until the end of the 60s. You know, it was there. It wasn't as hidden um, as it's often assumed to be, which is not to say that it wasn't uncontentious and uncontroversial, because if you look at the entrance to Foster Place, see where Thomas Davis is there? And you know I was standing there until the 11th of November 1928. A big statue of William of Orange. That William of Orange, because not that many, not many of them. Okay? <laughs> so King Billy was happily riding through Dublin until 1928. A statue erected by, or designed by, or sculpted by the famous British sculptor, English sculptor Grinling Gibbons, and erected here on the 12th of July 1701, amidst much fanfare. And throughout the 18th century, was a focal point for uh, state ceremonials in what was then, at that time, an explicitly Protestant state. A focal point for uh, popular loyalism, of which there was a great deal in Dublin. Okay, and also a target for attacks. You know, it was painted black in 1922, just before the 12th of July, to annoy Dublin's orange men. There was a 10 May to blow it up in 1936. It was, in 1882, there was a police strike, which resulted in riots across the city, and the thing was pretty badly damaged then. And on the 11th of November, 1928, a number of uh, memorials that were seen to represent British imperialism were attacked in Dublin. A fountain in Herbert Park is one that comes to mind. There's one that I've forgotten. Um, and the statue of King Billy was another. Now, a bomb was placed under the, under the statue, blew off the hind leg. That wasn't enough to bring it down, but the guard took the view then, well, it's a traffic hazard. We'll take it away, we'll repair it, we'll put it back, won't we? Yeah. <laughs> Bits of it do survive. Now, um, during the Second World War, the, um, the, a lot, some of the metal was used in the, you know, the period of resting, including a certain part of the horse's anatomy which was used to mend the pipe, apparently. Just think about what part of a horse is nice and round. <laughs> you know, I don't mean the belly, though it is close to it. Um, and a fragment of it went on display in, a, in an exhibition at the Victorian Albert Museum a couple of years ago about attacks on iconography, you know. Um, it reminds us of something that's, you know, things that, we, things that we don't have can tell a story as much as things that we still do have. Mm. Now, we're coming, we're coming towards the end of matters, and there's really kind of two stroke three last stops. The last one being the customs house, but the one in between, you'll get to the moment after we answer your question, Donald. Pier Street, or as it was originally called, Great Brunswick Street uh, Police Station. So, police station for the Dublin Metropolitan Police. There were two police forces in um, pre-independence Ireland. Dublin had its own, 
the DMP who were unarmed and then the Royal Irish Constabulary took care of uh, affairs elsewhere in the country and they were armed. Now, I suppose uh, in, in 1919 when Michael Collins really began to, I suppose, become far more assertive in uh, developing the IRA's campaign, policemen were not a matter target because the, the, the DMP would have had responsibility for intelligence gathering, keeping an eye on subversives. You know, it was divided into a number of, uh, number of you know, divisions listed by alphabetical numbers. Okay, but what, uh, what are the type of letters? And G was the one that based had responsibility for keeping an eye on political undesirable subversives, etc., etc., etc. And from 1919, they began to be targeted. I mean, there's, um, there was an account that someone said, uh, and these guys weren't, they were, they were hated by Republicans. And there's an account, I think, by uh, Vinnie Doyle, that they became one of uh, the members of Collins' squad. Yes, you know, squad was, I think it was Doyle. But it's, um, it's in the Bureau of Military History. He has a detailed uh, a meeting where uh, I think Collins and a couple of others, Richard Mulcahy, are there basically saying, right, well, how do you feel about killing policemen? I mean, how do you feel about going up to a policeman in the middle of the day or night? and shooting dead as well. And this, a lot of them had objections to this, because again, this wasn't what soldiers were meant to do, and they did view themselves as soldiers. But this, the, the author of the statement said, well, it depends on who, it really depends on who the policeman is. And the answer came back, what about Inspector Barton? Oh yeah, no problem. <laughs> you know, And there were a number of police officers and inspectors shot in the vicinity of this building in, the, in, the, uh, in 1919, in the course of the, the early phase of the War of Independence. Um, now, the catch was that the, you know, members of the Dublin Metropolitan Police they did, I mean, police aren't meant to have political sympathies, but they did, you know, and there were quite a number of sympathisers with the independence movement in the ranks of the DMP. So much so that apparently they had to vet um, who was what the police officer were going to get shot. If the police officer you took it, you didn't like, or you felt should be shot, some guy walking at speed, it had to be checked that you weren't just shooting a potential ally, or an actual ally, you know. Now there's another issue, however, with police, for- with police forces in Ireland, because in 1920, their ranks began to collapse dramatically. Um, things were just heating up a little bit too much um, people resigning in protest at somewhat things that were being demanded of them and from the summer 1920 the police forces in Ireland and the RIC in particular was augmented with new paramilitary units because one thing about the demobilisation of troops in the aftermath of the First World War and this is an issue that all applied all across Europe a lot of them um, okay, a lot of them would have brought you know, Spanish flu around the globe what to do with lots of hundreds millions of hardened and brutalised men across Europe. All across Europe in this period, you know, kind of paramilitary organisations popped up. And one way in which uh, the British exploited the ready supply of demobilised ex-servicemen was by using them as the basis to create paramilitary units that were intended to bolster the ranks of the police, the depleted police forces in Ireland, and to crack down on the emerging threat of the IRA as they saw it in a far more heavy-handed manner than before. And these are the groups that colloquially known as auxiliaries and black and tans. Okay, ex-servicemen. Multinational forces, it must be said. There were Irish guys in black and tans, there were Australians, there were Americans. The bulk would have been British. Um, these were classed as, um, as um, auxiliary constabularies. So they were officially part of the police forces. And this is a point that was made recently. There was a kind of one recurring debate that pops up. was what about commemorating the policemen of the revolution? You know, the point was made, well, if you do that in a blanket sense, you're commemorating black and tans because technically these forces armed as heavily as any soldiers equipped differently with a different license different chain of command but officially part of the police forces so distinction is there to be made uh, from February 1920 curfews were being imposed in Dublin okay? it's a great photograph of uh, in the National Library I hope it's in the exhibition of a car being searched just at that junction by troops 
Um, the police forces in Ireland became paramilitary bodies in the later years of the revolution, okay? Um, I mean, the, the reputation of, say, black and and auxiliaries got for indiscipline and brutality is not a myth. It is well deserved. They were officially part of the police forces, and it was probably no coincidence as, civ- as you might say, the instrument of civil society to some degree began to collapse in Ireland. They were topped up in a pretty heavy handed way. And the weird thing is that, in a weird, it's kind of weird because there's quite a lot of accounts of, say, members of the British Army who disliked these organisations. They were given a certain licence, you know, for, I mean, their indiscipline wasn't kind of, they, they were subject to far less discipline than their formal military counterparts, you know. I mean, there were elements in the British Army who looked at what these guys were doing, didn't like it, viewed it as unsoldierly, as kind of sapping of morale, as undermining military discipline, you know. And, you know, credit, I mean, credit or blame has to be accorded that the person, probably the key member of the British cabinet who advocated for reprisals in Ireland in 1919, 20 and 21 was Winston Churchill. Mm-hmm. Okay. Intimately familiar with Irish affairs, but he was the guy that more than other drove the issue forward. And uh, there's a quote from Henry Wilson, who was later assassinated. And Wilson was a pretty staunch Irish unionist where he discussed, you recall the conversation with Winston Churchill about the possibility of reprisals and his exact wording, it's a letter to his wife, was something like, Winston is all for it, but it horrifies me. That as a soldier, and even given his own political beliefs, this kind of stuff was a step too far, ironically enough. So next time you see, you hear Darkest Hour, or you hear of a Churchillian moment or anything like that, mm. just remember, there was another side to the man that doesn't get as much airplay, mm. you know? And his record in Ireland certainly is something that um, questions can be asked about. His record towards Ireland, so to speak. Um, yeah, we're going to go down to the Customs House and wrap it all up there. Two guys shot in the Gresham Hotel who were killed on Bloody Sunday. Now, the thing is, though, they weren't actually... Like, every, every, everyone else killed on Bloody Sunday did have some kind of military rank. These guys didn't. They had left the service. Okay? But, as gentlemen often did, they still used their rank. And they signed themselves into the hotel using their rank. And the thing that the thing about them is that they're buried in Glass Devon. They didn't get a state funeral. Because from a British point of view, well, nothing to do with us. The other guys were on service. They weren't. You know? So there are these little quirks about... Uh, that's me going off in a kind of random tangent. Yeah, but it's in the treaty. They had to cough up, and that was something that didn't go down too well, you know. Uh, Paul? I'm not going to apologise for that statement. It is not a particularly beautiful building at this stage, you know. It maybe it was at the start, in the way that you can still you can see how Bussaurus was once a pretty attractive modernist building, but, you know, definitely needs a bit of sprucing up at this stage. Um, Liberty Hall, you know, I mean, the original Liberty Hall would have been an old hotel. Probably not a million miles away to what that building over there would look like. Uh, the SIP, the headquarters of the ITWU, place with 1916 proclamation was organised, etc, etc, etc. But it remained a venue for the labour movement and also for, you know, various commemorations and functions that would take place. Like I mentioned earlier on, Constance Markovich, there's a photograph of her um, in Liberty Hall having been released from captivity in May 1919. And it's quite elaborate descriptions of the parade that was meant to take place to mark this, the procession. Again, political theatre of a sort, garnering support for the cause, where you'd have different, um, different kind of groups meeting up in the Keys and Beresford Place and quite diverse like Sinn Féin the ITGWU the Irish Citizen Army the Irish Women's Franchise League lest we forget you know that element of kind of activism as well before they embarked on a procession from Liberty Hall ultimately culminating in um, a meeting up in the Coombe so it was still used as a venue in this period as well now the big one however is the Customs House and as you can see the discoloration that's on mm. it that comes from uh, its reconstruction in the 1920s because uh, the original building faced with Portland stone, which is a very common characteristic of public buildings in Dublin. When the dome was rebuilt in the 1920s, it was rebuilt with limestone from Kildare, 
which discolors in a different way. Hmm. And apparently it was used, this, this pops up in the, in the Dolls record, the notion that it was somewhat unseemly in the, the Catford to reconstruct the capital of a, uh, a public building in a newly independent Irish state with British stone. <laughs> and you can see it as a kind of enduring kind of architectural uh, legacy with the discoloration. We'll head down to the Customs House and wrap up right uh, just outside the building. So, Doggy's getting a good walk anyway. I'll stand over this side so you get a. Uh, you don't just get the benefit of gazing upon my handsome features, but uh, you get to look at what is one of the finest examples of Georgian architecture in the city. This is the kind of thing that, you know, enthusiasts for Georgian Dublin and members of the Irish Georgian Society, it makes them, makes them lie on their back and kick their feet in the air and pour and let you tickle their bellies and it makes them very, very happy. Um, that doesn't, understandably so, the Loop Line Bridge. It's funny, little, uh, I, know, I know I said I wouldn't talk about the Easter Rising, but it's, this is a good place I need to nail one of the enduring myths about the Easter Rising. The gunboat. Mm. Okay. The Helga, which um, you would think was something like the Bismarck sailing up the River Liffey, about to lay waste to everything. Now, the Helga was a fishery protection, a research vessel. Okay. It had laboratories on it. And like basically anything that could float in the outbreak of the Forest of War was requisitioned in the service and a gun was put in it. And it wasn't a very big gun either. So, what apparently uh, happened is that the thing was sent up the River Liffey and fired at Liberty Hall. Now, there is this kind of uh, mistake people make, and I've done it myself and I've done it in print, where you claim the shells were lobbed over the building, lobbed over the bridge. Things are, if you look at that, it's kind of physically almost impossible because you put the fire the thing how high in the air and hope it drops down in the same place so if you look at photographs of liberty hall after the rise and you can see where one side of it is more badly damaged than the other because you could sneak a few shots underneath the loop line bridge yeah. um and this is conflated with the destruction of o'connell street okay the it's one of these out of sight out of mind things like o'connell street was destroyed by fires caused by artillery not by artillery itself but that artillery would have been based up in Fibsborough, firing into the city centre. But that's out of sight, out of mind. The Helga was in the middle and that kind of got to Ratford, you know. So it's one of these, a lot of people say it, you know. I've said it. People more eminent than me have said it. People are going to keep saying it, okay. But never mind it. Yes, don't. Were they firing from Trinity College? They were, yeah. Wasn't that what did the damage to Liberty Yeah, they brought a gun down here as well, actually. Yes, you're right. And I think there was a, I think there was an artillery piece at... Um, Lear Street. At the Lear Street, you know, there's a... There's a there's a guy called Joe Good wrote a very good memoir to write, fascinating memoir, and he wrote it with a kind of slightly jaundiced eye as well. But he recalls being one of the buildings at the corner of Liberty of uh, O'Connell Street and you know soldiers digging up the sets in the ground to lay gun trails in, you know, for the recoil, apparently. Anyway, you're not meant to be talking about that kind of stuff. This is about Dublin after the rising, okay? And um, one thing is that there's I've never seen there's a Harry there's a very famous image by Harry Clark called The Last Hour of the Night, which was used as a frontispiece for um a book called Dublin of the Future, published in the 1920s. And in it, it has this kind of spectral character, a bit like the, the vampire from that film Nosferatu. But it also has the three, I suppose, great buildings of George in Dublin, all destroyed. Because, you know, the GPO is, a, is late Georgian architecture as well. The forecourt you mentioned earlier on, and finally our friend, the Customs House. That too was destroyed on 25th of May, 1921, by a rather large attack by the IRA. Because I have mentioned the whole thing about... Um, the IRA fighting the war for fleeing Dublin, assassination, ambush, etc, etc. And also the propaganda value of Dublin and the propaganda value of keeping the spotlight in Ireland's capital city. That went both ways. Because, you know, propaganda was also used by the British to try and combat kind of international campaign by, uh, by Sinn Féin and by Republicans. And a key part of that was the claim that they're just assassins, criminals. People skulking around, killing people, killing unarmed defensive soldiers, soldiers and police officers and blah, 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 in the dead of night, this type of thing. 
So it was seen that it was perhaps time or opportune for a big, spectacular action to prove or to reassert the notion that the IRA or the Irish volunteers were like the IRA were that they did fight in the open. That they is um. I'm definitely putting that bit up. I have a coffee. Now the thing is that the idea, there were a couple of ideas for a big spectacular action, okay? One was to attack Berger's Brush Barracks, which is where the Auxiliary Division were based in Dublin, or was one of their bases, and this one to toss. What's so special about the Customs House, okay? Um, I suppose it's the fact that it was developed here, because I should have pointed out that the original Customs House was on the location of what's now the Clarence Hotel, so it's a physical reflection of how the city has expanded over time, and Dublin Port would have followed the development of, of the North Docks would have followed after the construction of the Customs House. I mean, there was once a dock roughly on the location of where the, uh, that, the building of the IFSC, or the IFSC house is. It housed the local government um, departments, which would have been an important thing to disrupt, the mechanism of local government. So it wasn't purely symbolic action, okay? It did, there was a rationale to it. There's also the fact, though, it was big, it was spectacular. Something like this would be a good thing to do. Now, the way in which it was done was that... Um, the building was cased, so to speak, and paraffin, rag soaked in paraffin were used to burn it out, okay? Because um, so much of the interior is stonework, and last time I looked, stone doesn't ignite very well. And large numbers of the IRA were used to, about midday, they kind of tried to seal off the area around here, went into the building, and began to ignite it as best they could. Now, there was a response to this pretty quickly. Um, members of the, either the auxiliaries of Black and Tans, I forget which unit, were based in the, the old, one of the old hotels down the Keys, it's an old red brick building. If you're on your way down to the Tree Arena, I think it's an old hotel. I'd know when I see it. I used to live near. I can't remember the name of it. I'm not a bad person, okay? <laughs> but it's down there. So, the, and you know, there were there were forces in the city that were able to get get to it. And you know, gunfights broke out. About 80 members of the Dublin Brigade of the IRA were arrested. About five members of it were killed. So, in one sense, you could say it was a bit of a kind of you know a disaster, a military or a paramilitary disaster in one sense. But it did result in the destruction of the building. Now, the destruction of the building was also facilitated by members of Dublin Fire Brigade. Because what's also nearby here is the fire station, okay, in Tower Street, with a big tower in it. The catch is, there were a lot of members of the fire brigade who were members of the IRA at the same time. And so they were going into the building, not with the intention of putting the fire out, but letting it spread. Fanning it, picking up (laughs) weapons and smuggling the weapons out, bringing in uniforms to give to members of the IRA so they could put them on and pose as firemen and escape themselves, right. you know. And it's funny when, um, I mean, the, the, the flames are coming out of this whole building, you know, all these sides. If you look at photographs of the actual destruction, one thing you might notice is that there's a ship roughly here. And then down here, there's row upon row upon row of barrels. These are apparently porter barrels, because what happened later on that night when, uh, you know, the building was, uh, was ablaze, it was hard to put out. Prisoners were detained and barrels were placed. It eventually taken off. Um, what happened is later on that night, members of the auxiliaries began breaking open the barrels of porter and treating themselves to uh, a few drinks. And this began to happen on the steps of Liberty Hall. And they began chatting to the firemen, who apparently were, um, you know, some of these firemen were members of the IRA, but apparently found a conversation with members of the auxiliaries and own. They were chatting away to them. Apparently, it was perfectly agreeable um, until a couple of members of the auxiliary division began to suggest, after having a few drinks, that maybe it's time to see who was the best shot and began shooting out some of the remaining windows in the building oh. and various other things at which, place, at which point the firemen disappeared figured they'd done their job <laughs> the building was burnt out wasn't reconstructed until the 1920s and in the 1920s it's funny because there were grandiose schemes for the reconstruction of Dublin that were mooted um, 
some very impressive and grandiose schemes. And one rationale for them was that so much of the interior of the city had been destroyed that perhaps it was time for, you know, it was like the you know, tabula rasa, you know, we could kind of start from scratch with a blank slate, so to speak, and reconstruct a new city. Now, bear in mind, this was a city that, even before the First World War, was notorious for its chronic poverty. Um, I'm sure you've all heard the, kind of, the collapse of the tenements in Church Street, and, which was seen as kind of something that finally, one, finally was going to trigger attempts to tackle Dublin's notorious slum poverty. But those attempts were derailed by the outbreak of the First World War. You know, um, well, there had been some kind of, there was building work available in, in the aftermath of the Easter Rising as O'Connell Street or Sackville Street was reconstructed. You were hardly going to have wholesale reconstruction of a new shining capital city. And some of the plans were insane. I mean, uh, I think the doll was going to go out to the Royal Hospital in Kilmainham. You know, there's going to be a new cathedral at the end of Caper Street. Like, real kind of, you know, what are you smoking kind of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> um, but in a city that simply couldn't tackle its own, its inherent and chronic problems of poverty, you know, due to the war and the reallocation of resources, there was no chance of any of this kind of more grandiose stuff happening. And it's funny that every couple of years in post-independence Dublin and pre-independence Dublin, someone would come up with an amazing plan to redo the city and rebuild it. And the inevitable response would be, that's grand, but how do you pay for it? Yeah. Okay, So, you know, these kind of things didn't happen. As a public building, yeah, you could reconstruct that. The GPO was reconstructed, the forecourse was reconstructed. But there's still enough traces, I suppose, of uh, the legacy of these years and the streets to actually be able to pull together something resembling a little walk. Now, you can't get everything in. I said that at the start. You can't squeeze everything in. Uh, and some things fall by the wayside. Like, the commemoration of conflict doesn't always lead itself to, you know, uncovering social history. One of the reasons why I think the, the Spanish flu epidemic is actually a fascinating opportunity to reveal elements of that. But... We could be here all day talking about that type of thing anyway. Um, I'm kind of quietly impressed that I still have the old magic touch. Yeah. That I've kept you all, virtually all of you here until the bitter end. Yeah. You haven't, you haven't exactly been a tough crowd. Yeah. Uh, I hope you've gotten something out of this. Brilliant. Um, well, that's all, folks, for another day. I hope you enjoyed John's tour. My advice is get up to Dublin, buy his book, and amble around the streets of, of Dublin on that revolutionary walk. Tour.